Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. This is National Hope Month. So joining me today is Patty Bear, author from Plain to Plain, My Mennonite Childhood, A National Scandal, and An Unconventional Soar to Freedom. Patty knows firsthand that getting out is possible. Ultimately, she broke free, became a pioneering female Air Force Academy grad and pilot, serving as an aircraft commander in the first Gulf War. Welcome, Patty. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So what a story you have to tell. Let's just jump in and get started. I have kind of an unusual story, I guess, given where I ended up. I started out, I grew up in among the plain people of Pennsylvania, which is the Amish and Old Order Mennonites. And that was the life that I expected to live. I expected to grow up like my mother and wear long, dark dresses and black bonnets and we didn't have television. We were to avoid basically anything worldly. We couldn't vote. We couldn't um, go to the movies. We, the men didn't serve in the military. The women obviously had very traditional roles. You couldn't press charges. Uh, for Somebody robbed us once and we couldn't press charges. We weren't allowed to what they called go to the law. So um, just a very restrictive background. Everybody I knew on both sides of my family, and as far as I knew for 400 years on both sides had been in this church and you grew up and that's what you expected to be in. And if you left after you joined, then you got excommunicated and shunned. And so that's what happened to my father when I was eight years old, he got excommunicated, he was shunned. And then he went kind of berserk. He became violent and he took his case to the courts. He eventually went to the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. He took his case to um, the newspapers in 19... 73, a year later, his case made the front page of the New York Times. For about the next decade, he was in the national newspapers. He was in the Washington Post several times, New York Times again. He was in the Boston Globe. I think he was on Good Morning America. We didn't have a TV, so I'm not certain of that fact. But he was in People magazine. He was on Canadian television and newspapers. And he was in every um, small town newspaper in the nation. You know, as you can imagine, this was a pretty searing experience. And Part of what was so searing about it is that my father was considered um, a folk hero, and he had a very sympathetic public who did not know that behind the scenes we were living on the run. We fled the farm that we had grown up on and loved and moved away. He hired a detective and found us, and it was just years of being stalked, being in the public, and different court cases. So anyway, as for my part of the story for this, I looked at the life that my mother had, and I determined at some point, I was like, I had no idea how I was going to do it, but I was determined I was going to have a different life. And a big part of that was being financially independent. I had this sort of the story that's kind of like a trail of breadcrumbs. One thing led to another, and I started taking classes. My uh, oldest brother told me what classes to take and uh, eventually got me into flying as well, told me to take flying lessons that I didn't have any interest in and couldn't afford. Anyway, out of that, uh, what happened is I earned an appointment to the Air Force Academy in Florida Springs and eventually became an Air Force pilot, just recently retired as airline captain. That's crazy. Now, how many siblings do you have? Five. So there's six six children total. Well, he didn't actually leave. He was terrorizing us at home. It was definitely domestic violence. We eventually left. We fled the farm and then he hired a detective to find us. But what was really jarring is, is that the story that he told the press and that they repeated almost verbatim, uh, we were raised to turn the other cheek. So my mom never gave a different story. 
And they just kind of ran with the story that he gave them. Things that I say about abusers in general is that they're very, well, they're manipulative, but they also have a standard three-step public relations strategy that they use. And it's very effective. And he did. And so one of the things that was kind of crazy making besides living on the run from him and having to support ourselves was that there was this public image that he was this folk hero, that he was this very admirable person. And meanwhile, we're living this very terrifying existence behind the scenes. We moved. It got so bad that my mom bought a wig and she got a red car because, of course, we drove black cars as the plain people. She figured he wouldn't notice her on the road if she drove a red car. And she lived in a motel for the summer. And then the four oldest of us lived at home. I think my oldest brother had just turned 16. So we were probably 16, 15, maybe 13 and 12. One Christmas we spent at the church nursing home. We had to flee because he came and uh, broke down the door. So it was just a lot of living on the run. What did your mom do for work? So my grandmother had a market stand at the farmer's market. She worked there. She had a part-time job. She made some breads for my grandmother. She worked for my uncle in his greenhouse. And then we children all had jobs. So when we fled the farm, I was in fifth grade and I had a job, literally a punching the time clock kind of job after school. And after school, we would all get a van and, and get out and drive to, my uncle had a business. He had a farm market business and we would work there. We worked on the weekends, worked on the summers. I had to pitch in and provide for the family. You say that people trapped in oppressive relationships often cling to the hope that better days are just around the corner. And the only real hope lies in the ability to take action. That's so powerful because people always say, why don't they just leave? And number one is they don't understand they don't leave because they may be killed, but also they're waiting for that person they married to show up because when they married that person, they loved him, they weren't abusive, and then suddenly things change. I think the hope is always maybe this person will change. Maybe they'll see what they're doing. Maybe they'll kind of snap out of it. Maybe they'll come to their senses. It's very difficult to flee. You, you put down roots, and if you flee, they find you. But one of the things that I learned during this whole process was that the person who's the least likely to change is an abusive person or an abusive organization. They just don't have the consciousness level to change. It doesn't mean that they abuse everybody. They have a completely different persona in public. You know, my father was very well liked. He was very personable. He was a very charismatic person in public. And that's one of the things that's kind of crazy making for victims of that kind of abuse is other people look at it and they say, well, he's a great guy. He's friendly. He's generous. He's soft-spoken. He's polite. I think it's important for the public who maybe hasn't had this experience to recognize that people are chameleons often. They don't do this to everybody. And that's part of the maddening part of this kind of situation. And so I say that because it's important for the victims to break the pattern. You're the only one that's going to because you reach rock bottom. The victims are the ones that realize the cost, which is what I did. You know, I was in sixth grade when I made this vow to myself. I was like, I am going to be financially dependent. I am never going to be stuck with six kids and no means of support had no idea how to do it. I always say you don't need to know how to do it. You just need to know that you want to do it. And then you take 
one step at a time, something that seems to be in the direction. And I literally didn't know. I One of my steps was I ended up winning a, a race in eighth grade that I had no idea was going to lead me anywhere. I ended up getting on to a sports team in high school, which was not typical for our environment. We didn't typically participate in sports teams or clubs or anything like that. That was a step out of that environment. I thought that I was going to get a scholarship from it. I didn't end up getting a scholarship from that, but it was a step out of that world. I think what is really difficult, what you were saying about how they can be so charming and convincing, and then nobody believes the family. And so there isn't help available. And the fact that your mom had a red car and a wig to try to disguise herself just shows the level of trying to stay under the radar. And then especially being of that turn the other cheek belief system. If we turn the other cheek, then they may change and get better. And then that's not happening. What do you recommend for people that are listening and they're going, oh no, (laughs) this is my life and I don't know what to do. I feel so stuck. That's a tough question because for each person it's different, but I do think that within each one of us, there's some kind of intuitive knowing of what the next step is, or there's the ability to recognize it. I guess really the first step for somebody is to validate their experience and to want something different. And when I say validate experience, one of the things that happens is that for either abusive individuals or abusive organizations is that they don't only train the public how to see them, they train their victims as well. And what they often train their victims to believe is that somehow they're responsible for the abusive behavior, that somehow if they would just do something different, it's a cliche, but it's a good example as well too, that, well, if you didn't make me angry, if you didn't burn dinner, if you had the dinner on the table, if you did everything exactly right, that I wouldn't behave the way I do. And what I hope that people who hear this will take away is that you're never responsible for an abuser's behavior ever. That's a choice on a person's part, but it's a very seductive message that somehow you can change their behavior. And it's one that when you're in a powerless situation, it has a lot of appeal, very unnerving to feel powerless. And so the idea that we might have some power, we might be able to influence somebody else's actions who's behaving in a crazy way, I guess, is appealing. They will tell you that story all day long. And so what I hope that people listening to this take away from it is it's not your fault. And that's a choice for them. the, The choice for each one of us then is, well, what's a step in the direction of something that would be better for my life? And if you have kids, better for your kids. What would you say is the best way for somebody to get away? Family and friends want to jump in, confront the abuser, and that does not make it better. It makes it worse for the victim. Well, I think that's different for each person. And for us, we endured this for two and a half years before it got so bad that it was just clear that we had to leave and we just fled. My mom came and picked us up from school one day and we never went back home. The one thing I would say is that Oftentimes, people want to jump in once it becomes clear that someone is really overtly abusive. It can help if you stand up and you set boundaries earlier and you recognize the behavior early and you say, hey, that's, that's not cool. That's not acceptable you got to stop. I'm not going to tolerate that. If you're a bystander, and this was one of the things that was a big part of in the book that I wrote, it was very frustrating how many bystanders stood around and did nothing. So obviously it can be dangerous, like you're saying, if bystanders jump in, 
But the other thing that they can do is they can communicate that the abuser's behavior is not appropriate. It's not acceptable. I won't tolerate it. Certainly not to condone it or to admire it because it feeds it. That's what I saw is everybody fed this folk hero image that was being portrayed. Here's what we would hope, that they would finally believe the family and then they would do something about the man so the family could come back to the home and live a safe life. But that's not what happened for you. You guys didn't get to go home or be safe. I was in fifth grade, the middle of fifth grade when we fled the farm, and then it was still going on. Um, to some extent when I graduated from high school and left and, and that was my way of getting away from it was to, I went off to college, the Air Force Academy and yes, nobody stopped him. He had a trial where it was maddening. He tried to abduct my mother. He admitted it to the jury. There were multiple witnesses and the jury acquitted him in less than an hour because they Listened to his story and abusers tell a very compelling story. They they acquitted him. It can be very maddening. How do you not lose faith in, in justice systems? And I did lose faith. I did. It was very frustrating. It was just, it's maddening because you feel like no matter what he does, he'll get away with it. And no matter what he says, people will believe it. It's just crazy making. My answer was to leave. I just got out of there and made my own life and then wrote a book about it. And that part of the reason for writing the book, part half of it was an accountability project. And I wanted to set the record straight. And I think that's important for people to do, whether anyone listens or not, whether you write a book or whether you just say, listen, this happened to me. I think it's important to be a witness to the truth about what happened. It puts abusers on notice. It puts them on record. And there's something very empowering for an individual in that. So that was half of the reason. And then the other half of the reason is I wanted to write about this kind of trail of breadcrumbs that happens when you reach rock bottom and you say, no more, I'm going to do something different. The ways in which these little steps appear, not some obvious destination. There wasn't me anyway, but I just kind of followed them and and they led me out of out of that environment. And I love what you say. Number one, take concrete action in a new and better direction and one day at a time and then always change yourself rather than trying to get that abusive or oppressive person to change. And then you say become stronger and more independent. When I hear that, I think that is the best way because if you can support yourself, then you're not going to get sucked into, I can take care of you, you need me, all those lies that they tell. There's a statistic that people have to leave seven times. That's the average before they get away from an abuser. Was that the first time your mom left and the last or did she go back and forth a few times? Well, she never went back to him. He was just so, I think when people go back seven times, like they have the carrot and stick approach. My father only had the stick approach. So <laughs> <laughs> it was not very compelling to go back. Part of the reason she didn't leave is a very traditional environment that we came from. I would call the church environment, the religious environment as oppressive too. But she wanted to leave earlier. My understanding was that they told her to work a little harder on her marriage. So, you know, it was this, this, again, this very very traditional concept of stay together no matter what and work harder in your marriage. And finally, it became clear that it wasn't going to change and she was in danger and she had to leave, uh, partly because she was afraid she was going to lose her mind if she stayed. Mm. I know women who have come out with abuse of their husband and they've actually had to 
leave their church because the church believes their lies. Yes. It's so appalling to me. We all deserve a fair chance to hear the story, but the way it works out and the way they spin it, it can just be so hard for the family that's victimized to be able to come out on the other side. Yeah, for sure. And if I could share something I found very helpful, people who work with sexual violence offenders and domestic violence offenders have an acronym that they use to describe this three-step process that abusers use to fool the public. The first one is they deny what they're doing. Deny, deny, deny. The acronym is DARVO, D-A-R-V-O. So the first step is deny, and they'll just flat out lie, say they didn't do it. The second step is A for attack, and they will attack their victim's credibility. And so this is where they'll smear the victim's reputation. They'll say they're lying. They'll say they're exaggerating. They're crazy. They want money. They want fame. They want attention. And then once they have smeared their victim's credibility, then they flip it around. And the last step is RVO, and they reverse the victim and offender. And this is where they'll pound the table. They'll get red in the face and they will claim that they have been unfairly accused and that they are the real victim. That's DARVO, D-deny-A attack, RVO, reverse victim and offender. The thing is, is that once you recognize this pattern, it's used by abusers all around the world of, of every type. And once you recognize this, you can't unsee it. And then you'll begin to see the truth of what's really going on here. Uh, What are people's actions versus what they're saying and what they're doing? I think what is hard also is people have a tendency to think maybe abusers are like lower class or, but they are doctors and lawyers. They think they can't be in an abusive relationship because they're educated. So then it's hard for them to accept it. And so the rock bottom is when they finally go, I can't do this. And I've often heard people say, It's either I die or he dies or she dies, whichever one is being abused. Yeah, that's an excellent point. You know, we think that somebody who who would do something like this looks a particular way or that they behave like that all the time, like we, we spoke about earlier, but they don't. It cuts across all socioeconomic classes. You can't look at somebody and say that. But what you can do is you can look at their behavior. You know, you can look at their behavior towards the people in their lives, how are they being treated, that you can look for inconsistencies. And especially if they're trying to smear that person's credibility or that they're always claiming they're the victim and they're in a position of power. That's the other thing is somebody is in a position of power and they're claiming that they're always the victim. That's a big red flag. What would you say to somebody who's seeing it go on in their family? What steps can they take to be supportive? Believe the person. We've heard this in a number of different contexts here in the Me Too movement, but certainly domestic violence. If someone tells you that, just hear their perspective, listen to their reality. And the fact that it's different than your reality, you know, this person may very well be nice to you. This person may be kind to you. They may be thoughtful. But if that other person is telling you a different story, listen, then start to look around, start to pay attention, look for other red flags, look for inconsistencies, look for is the person who's being victimized, are they being put in a position where they're dependent because that makes them easier to victimize? Are they being subjugated in some way? Are they being asked to be submissive or told that they should be submissive? Is their freedom being restricted in any way? Look for those things. The most important thing is to be a witness, is, is to, to hear what they're saying 
And then if you have the capability, if you're in a position of power or then maybe you can do something, you can always speak up and say, this is not right. You can always speak up as a voice of conscience, Mm -hmm. even if you don't have the power to do anything and say, I don't agree with this. This is not right. This is not fair. This is not kind. You can even say this is abusive. Sometimes that's a dangerous thing to say. Sometimes that's not effective, but you can speak to from your conscience. Yeah, it seems like people who are vulnerable in abuse, they haven't got to that place yet. They don't see it as abuse. And when you say it, it's almost like a dirty word. But I love what you said about saying this isn't right. People don't deserve to be treated like this because it kind of validates what they're thinking. Because I think a lot of times, especially women are, well, I'll try harder. Or what am I doing wrong? They take responsibility for it when it's clearly abuse. It's not just them not being a good partner. You know, that's an excellent point. And I think anytime someone is taking responsibility for someone else's bad behavior, that should be an enormous red flag. If I'm behaving badly, that's on me. And that's the same thing for someone else. If they're verbally abusive, if they're physically or in any other way, that belongs to the person who has that behavior. They own it. It's not somebody else's fault and it's not somebody else's responsibility to get them to change it. Right. So if you're making excuses for somebody in your home that's doing abusive things, that's a very clear thing. Also, a lot of times if the woman's getting abused, they think, well, at least he's only hurting me, but it hurts the children, whether they're being hit or spoke too badly. It hurts them to see that kind of behavior and see their mom being hurt. Yeah, it really does. That it was, it was very difficult for me to watch this happen to my mom. It was difficult for me to watch my siblings be abused. And the other thing I would say is it's not always men to women. It, it is in the majority of cases statistically. But the other day I was out walking at night I watched a woman hit a man over the head with a cane, with a metal handle and ran across the road to stop her. And she looked at me like, what are you doing here? This is none of your business. He had blood on his head. He had blood on his hands. It was like he belonged to her and she thought it was none of my business. And I had to pull her off and I said, I am going to call the police. You know, she eventually walked away. But so it does happen the other way. And you want to look for the patterns rather than the personality or the gender, I would say. We had a gentleman on, his name was Hampton Conway, and he's the principal of a school. And same thing, he was being abused by his wife, and he kept thinking, well, I have to try harder. And finally, he realized this is abuse, and it was embarrassing for him because even he went to his pastor, and and the pastor says, you're going to let her get away with that? And so finally he got away, but nobody believed him. I mean, trying to get through the court system, dealing with the police, it was just so difficult. I do believe the best thing you can say is, I believe you. So often they'll try to tell, and if they don't get the right response, then they they start defending that person. And so if you give them a listening ear and compassion and belief, then they feel a little safer and they might let a little more out. And as they say it, they're horrified, right? Because they don't talk about it and they're usually isolated and not permitted to have friends or go places. That's exactly right. And by the time that there is physical form of abuse, they have already endured emotional and psychological abuse. You have to wear a person down before you can just hit them or you can do other things to them. It's a slippery slope. And when you listen to people, when you hear what they're saying, when you reflect it back to them and you validate 
you don't deserve this. You know, this shouldn't be happening. You deserve better than this. It gets through to that other person at a level that it validates something that probably that they have forgotten by now or have been trained out of and conditioned out of. Exactly. Well, this is National Hope Month, and we're speaking with Patty Bear, the author of From Plain. P-L-A-I-N, to plain My Mennonite Childhood, A National Scandal, and Unconventional Soar to Freedom. Now, we didn't really talk about organization. Did you want to say some things on that? The same thing can happen with organizations. I talk about it a little bit in the book, but the religious background that I came from, I would certainly call repressive to women, kept women in a dependent position deliberately. When I say that, these aren't bad people. This is something that was passed down from generation to generation. But nevertheless, the net effect was the women were kept economic and that we were trained that we were supposed to be submissive to men. And that played a part in my father's abuse. You know, he expected his wife, he expected his children to give him unconditional obedience and loyalty, no matter how badly he behaved. And that plays into the dynamics where, as we talked about, the expectation is then the victim to, well, you should do something different. This is happening because if you would just do something different, in fact, I talk about it in the book. I overheard my sisters or one of the other women in the church say that if my mother had just been more submissive, none of this would have happened because it blew up. It became this national scandal. It felt like a, a double betrayal. It was like, what? You know, so organizations can be oppressive can be abusive as well. And the same dynamics place as a different actor. And I love what you said about red flags, because I feel like in this world, there are cults and there are things going on. And if, if we can recognize them in our family and at least be like, hey, we don't have to like go knock down the doors, but to start a different conversation and speak the truth, which is what you said earlier, uh, the truth is you don't deserve to be treated like this. The truth is nobody gets to have power over you. And you talk about cultivating hope and confidence. And that's a good thing for all of us to do is to cultivate that. Because if we do, then we're better people. We recognize things and we don't get as stuck in situations because there's also work environments that are abusive. That's exactly right. You're talking about the red flags, something that I take from the years in aviation. We had something called chain of events, and we were trained to be aware of the first problem in a chain of events. And the idea is that the little things add up to an accident. And the same thing can happen if you see somebody getting into a relationship and you see those little red flags. And Okay, so it's no big deal. He's just, this person's like really critical or he puts your friend down or whatever, or she puts your friend down, whichever way it is. It's one red flag. And if you put in the beginning, if you stop that chain of events, it stops it from becoming a much, much bigger problem down the road. There's a lady named Laura Richards. She's from the UK and she's working on, uh, she's actually gotten laws changed in the UK about stalking because often when you get away from these men or women, then they stalk you. So she's had uh, laws changed that if, if they stalk you and they're told not to or restraining order and they do it again, that there is a severe punishment because so often they're like, well, what's the big deal? They're not touching you. They're just looking. But I would love to see that in the U.S. because how many times do we hear on the news, oh, this woman was killed by her ex, but she had a restraining order well, that doesn't help. We need stronger laws that will keep them from being able to be in 
in your area and watching you and scaring you. It really does impact your life. I talk about it in the book, how every time as kids, every time we drove down the road, we were, our heads were on a swivel. We were always looking for, is my dad driving down the road? If we went to McDonald's, we never ate inside the store. We took our bag. There was a cemetery on the other side of this McDonald's that we went to. We drove all the way to the, to the back where it was heavily wooded. And only then could we relax. Being stalked like that, always living on, on the run, it doesn't leave your body. When you leave the situation, you know, you feel that for years and years, that sense of hypervigilance. And, and a lot of times you don't even realize it's just so natural. You've come to think that way. You've come to, to feel unsafe in your environment. It does have an impact. It has a big impact. So how has that all translated into your later life? Did you marry? Did you have kids? Did did these things like the when you called hypervigilant, did that did you carry that with you into your life and how did you deal with that? Yeah, you know, I didn't even realize that. Like I said, it was so natural. And I ended up many years later getting a life coach who is a, a very kind person. And she just kind of said that one day. And I was like, what? I don't think that's the case. I'm not hypervigilant. You know, it was so much a part of me. I really didn't recognize it. I talk about in the book, I grew up ice skating. If you ice skate out on ponds in in the country, you're going to have frozen feet from time to time. And your feet getting frozen is not nearly as uncomfortable as when they begin to thaw. It's agonizing. And so the same is true for when you get out of situations like this, you know, you don't realize you're frozen in some ways or that you're, that it's impacted you as much as it has. And it impacts relationships. It impacts finances because finances have to do with self-worth. It can impact every area of your life. I had a a learning relationship, I'll call it, for five years when I was at the academy and, and in the Air Force. I did learn from that relationship and I married a a man who was just a very good person. One of the things that I said, I sort of made a vow. I was never going to allow a man to hit me even once, never once. And there was something about that that was, when you know that, when you are so sure about something like that, people tend to take their measure of you and it's less likely to happen. It mm-hmm. doesn't, you can entirely prevent it, but I raised my kids differently. Some of the patterns, not everything, not everything, you know, I mean, certainly wasn't, you don't change everything overnight, but uh, I did make conscious choices that came out of, out of that. I heard you say, I'm never going to be financially in a situation where I can't raise my kids. Sometimes those things you promise yourself can turn out badly, like, I'm never going to love anybody. It sounds like you then had that motivation to go on to do something that really mattered to you, that gave you security, and then you could come from a different place in a relationship. Yeah, very much. Uh, It was always important to me to be financially independent, and I did, was, and am. I always use this example when I talk about relationships that we can have a kind of relationship where if you think of two people that you put your fingers together like a teepee. If one person moves, you're unstable. If you put two fingers and they're straight up vertical and you have two people who are walking side by side and both of them are independent, then you have a much stronger, if one person falters, it's not both falling. And financial independence, in my opinion, is a big part of that. However you structure it, whether you do it through a career, whether you find some other way to do it, it's very hard to get out of abuse if you are financially dependent. I also am a life coach and I see that. I see when women feel like they can't handle finances or whatever, they're like, well, I'll stay until the kids are gone or I'll stay. The more we know, 
And the more involved we are, then the better chance we have of being able to take control of our life and our situation. Yeah, absolutely. Forcing people into financial dependence is a form of abuse. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean somebody is a stay-at-home parent. That doesn't mean that that's a bad thing. But you know, you you can take measures to ensure that money is set aside for you, or that you your for your IRA is funded you know, you separately, because it sends a message that what you do has value and it is valuable. It's work and it's valuable in some way to make sure that that financial independence is, is yours. Well, thank you so much, Patty. Tell us again, the name of your book. The name of the book is From Plain to Plain, My Mennonite Childhood, A National Scandal and an Unconventional Sort of Freedom. Well, it was so wonderful talking to you and they can get your book. They can get it anywhere online, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indie Books, Books a Million and anywhere online. It is well worth the read to understand some of these red flags, to see what, if you're not in that situation, to see what it's like when people are. And also for anyone going through this, you're not alone. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Lori Hardy, and thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community and beyond.